Our scripture reading this morning is relatively short. It's from the book of Acts, and the specific reading is Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, and even then, not all of verse 1. That's how short it is. Uh, But it it provides the appropriate starting point for us this summer as we begin a a summer teaching series that will take us through chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and probably into chapter 12 as well. And because this verse is so short, I'm going to actually start with a little running running start at the, at the end of Acts chapter 7, and then we'll highlight the specific scripture reading when I, when I get to it. Now, very quick context, you have the early church following... following teaching about Jesus and about Jesus' resurrection in the synagogues, and the, the religious authorities didn't like it. And so they arrested Stephen, and they brought him before the, 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 the leadership, before the, the council of the Sanhedrin, and called him to answer for what he had been teaching. And they had been fine all along until he began to say that it is because of us, all of us, including the people that he was talking to, that Jesus needed to be crucified, and that they bore a certain level of responsibility for it. And they didn't like that, and it made them angry. So let me invite you to stand as I begin reading. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. I'm going to start at verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now, when the people heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. All right, now here's the official reading. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, Acts chapter 8 marks a pretty sharp shift in the formation of the, of the Christian church. One, because it begins from this point forward, the expansion of Christianity outside the city of Jerusalem. And two, because it begins the formal and the systematic oppression of Christians Intentional, structural, organized persecution against the Christian church. And we see the, 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 the genesis, the beginning of both of these things, the expansion of the gospel into all the world and the persecution of the Christian church. We see the, the beginning of both of these things in these three verses. In fact, you can almost consider these three verses to kind of be like the topic sentence or the heading over the next five, over the next five chapters. Right? Because it sets the stage for everything that's about, to, that's about to happen. So this week is really just, really just set up for themes that we're going to be exploring all summer long. Now let's start this week by looking 
at three things that described the early church. Because there is a sense in which we can draw parallels to today, but even, even if there are things that are different, knowing our origin story, knowing where we came from and the legacy of the church is critical for understanding who we are today. And so that's what we're going to do. I want to look at three things that describe the early church. What can we say about the early Christian church as we head into, into the summer? Well, we can say that the early Christian church was, was persecuted. We can say that it was scattered. We can also say that it was confident. It was persecuted, scattered, and confident. Let's take them one at a time. First, persecuted. Now, right away, we should define that term because there's different ways in which we use, different ways in which lots of people use that word persecution, and we should be try to be a little bit clearer about what we, about what we mean, or at least what we mean here in this context. Right? In verse 1, it says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, let me throw out just a possible definition here that I think fits this situation best. Let's say, for purposes this morning, that we're defining Christian, Christian persecution as institutionally driven suffering inflicted upon Christians because of their Christian faith. Institutionally driven suffering inflicted upon Christians because of their Christian faith. And that's not perfect, but it does contain a few elements that I think are important to note and kind of highlight and talk about so that we understand Christian persecution precisely in the way that we're speaking of it this morning. First, note that I said institutionally driven. Right? It isn't as if up to this point there, there weren't individuals who probably didn't like other in, individual in, uh, Christians because of their faith. Right? But what I'm talking about here and what, what we begin to see here is the kind of persecution that is now formalized and encouraged in an organized way by an authority structure. It wasn't the Romans yet. Their turn to, to be Christian persecutors would come in the centuries that follow. But at this point, it was the Jewish religious leaders who who began this systematic oppression. Stephen had been talking before the, the Sanhedrin, the religious council of the, of the, of the Jewish religious leaders, and, and he had been called before the Sanhedrin to answer for what he had been doing, to answer for what he had been teaching. Now, he might have been killed, he might have actually been executed by an, you know, an unsanctioned mob, not officially sanctioned by the Sanhedrin. Remember, only Rome actually held the power to execute someone. But clearly, the religious officials were encouraging it. They certainly approved of it. The first part of verse 1 even says that this guy named Saul, a representative of the Jewish leaders, that he approved of, of Stephen's execution. And Saul became instrumental in the formal campaign that now began, systematically entering into the homes of Christians and taking them to, to prison. And the treatment was pretty severe. The oppression was pretty severe, severe apparently, because the word that, that's translated ravaging there Right, is a pretty strong word. It conveys a sense of brutal treatment, cruelty. Now, that isn't to say that if someone is treated unjustly for their Christian faith by a random individual, that it isn't in some way persecution, right? We said that. There are, there are individuals that don't like other Christians because they're Christians, and they can treat them, they can pre treat them poorly or oppress them because of that. But, but in this precise way we're defining it here, it's oppression of Christians driven by an authority structure. That's one thing that is important to note. Now, it's also important to note that Christian persecution is persecution because of one's Christian faith. All right, that's important because you can be a Christian and you can be treated unjustly and not be, Christ not be persecuted because you're a Christian. 
In other words, think of it like this. I once got a traffic ticket in, uh, in, in Center City, Philadelphia for illegal stopping. Right? I pulled over into a no-parking zone to get out of the way of a big septa bus that was making a wide turn. And then I was stuck in that spot because I couldn't get out because the traffic was, was, uh, was, was getting by me. And I was waiting to get back into traffic. I couldn't pull out, and I got cited for it. And the crazy thing was is they mailed it to me. I didn't even know I was cited for it. I didn't even know at the time that there was an officer who was there to give me the ticket. But they sent it to me in the, in the mail and told me what I had done. Right? I tried to appeal. That didn't work. That almost never works. I considered an injustice. Right? I think I was wrongly accused. I think I was unjustly treated by an authority structure. But I'm pretty sure that it was not Christian persecution. Because they had no idea that I, was a, that I was a Christian. It may have been out-of-state persecution because I had a Delaware tag, but it had nothing to do with me being a Christian. Now, also important, to say that Christian persecution is suffering because you're a Christian is not the same thing as saying you're suffering because you're a Christian jerk. I love how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter knew something about Christian persecution, by the way. And he wrote that letter, 1 Peter, to encourage churches who were experiencing Christian persecution and knew something about it as well. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 14, he writes, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We looked at this verse actually a couple of weeks ago, remember? God pronounces his blessing and his favor upon those who are insulted for the name of Christ. But then, right after that, he continues in verse 15, and he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't you dare cry persecution when the suffering that you're experiencing, even at the hands of an authority, is because of your own doing, because of your own sinful doing. Or to say it differently, don't act in such a way that dishonors Christ and then claims, claim his blessing and favor upon the suffering and pain that results from your actions. Now, when it comes to the suffering that resulted in Acts chapter 8 in this great persecution here, it was clearly because the authorities had grasped the truth of what Stephen had been preaching. Right? They got it. They understood it, and they felt the threat of it. Open Doors International, which is a great organization for learning more about a Christian persecution throughout the world. They say that one of the main reasons Christian persecution happens is because Christians become a perceived threat to those who are in, in power. Stephen's message was a threat to the Jewish leaders. Theologically, it was a threat. Christians were claiming that Jesus was, was God. That, in their mind, misunderstood, of course, we, uh, we believe, but, but that, in their mind, was blasphemy. Theologically, it was a threat to have Christians teaching these things. Practically, it was also a threat because Stephen and the message of Christianity was challenging the leaders now to repent of their sin. It was calling them out as, as leaders for their part in the unjust death of Jesus. And it was a threat because, because the Christians were now beginning to grow. They were beginning to gather. They were beginning to gather in homes. They were gathering in the synagogue. They were gathering in the, in the temple courts. And so now, all of a sudden there was a potential organizational structure that was forming that could challenge the status of those who were currently in power. One way or another, the Christians were hated because people knew that they were Christians. Now, let that be convicting for us for for just a second. Is your Christian faith, if you would name yourself as as a Christian, is your Christian faith in any way distinctive enough, in any way known enough, that someone might potentially dislike you for it. Jesus said in John 15 that his, to his disciples that they should expect that to happen. 
Right? He wasn't asking them to go out and be idiots and invite it to happen, but he said, this is just going to naturally happen. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater, greater than his master, he said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? So if you follow Jesus, Jesus says, there will be those who dislike you. But in order for people to dislike you because of Jesus, they need to know that you follow Jesus. And you really should make it your goal for people, if they're going to dislike you anyway, to dislike you for the right reasons. In other words, if, if, we're, going to, if we're going to be disliked by some, no matter what, try not to waste it by being misunderstood for what they really ought to dislike you about, right? Stephen's message, just like Jesus' message here, was disliked for the right reasons. It wasn't because, it wasn't because Stephen didn't explain things carefully enough or graciously enough. Right? Even if you might be able to say, well, Stephen's a sinner, perhaps he said something he shouldn't. That isn't the reason why Jesus was persecuted. He never, didn't, he, he never could be accused of saying things the wrong way. Now, maybe he just didn't phrase it right. Maybe he should have been a little bit more gracious in this situation, or he should have been a little more forceful in this situation. No, he always said it exactly the same way. Right? So it, so it, it wasn't because of that. They, it was because the church was being, was being persecuted. People began to dislike these Christians because they were calling people to repent of their sins and because they wanted them to know as a result of their repentance the life, the hope, and the joy that comes only through Jesus. They wanted the best for them even if the people didn't realize it. That's why they wanted them to recognize and repent of their sins. Right? And if you're committed to running and to ruling your own life, then that message is going to be offensive at some level and you might even dislike me for bringing it to you. Because what I'm going to say to you is, no, if you want the best for your life, the only way for that to happen is for you to relinquish control of it to someone who can truly give you what you desire. But that relinquishing of control is a, is a, is a threat. It's an offense. It's a challenge to authority, whether corporate institutional authority or in the, in the terms of an individual conversation, it's a threat to our own autonomy and our own desire to run and rule our own lives. But that message is a threat to authority. But if you're going to dislike me, then you might as well dislike me for that. Dislike me for wanting to love you in a way that you may not want me to love you, but is really the most loving thing I can possibly do. Seriously, try this as a strategy when you encounter someone who seems hostile to Christianity. Right? If you aren't hiding the fact that you're a Christian, that sooner or later it'll probably happen. And when it does, say to them, it seems as if you're really angry about Christianity and really dislike Christians. Now, I'm a Christian. And I don't really want you to dislike me. But I can actually think of good reasons why you might dislike me and bad reasons for you to dislike me. Would you be willing to talk with me a little bit so that I can make sure that you dislike me for the right reasons? See how that goes. And then tell them about the gospel and our sin and our need to repent. Let them know your desire to, to, for them to know these things because you love them and because you care about them. Because you, you, you can understand that they might find it offensive. Now, it may or may not work, and they may still end up disliking you, but at least they're going to dislike you for the right reasons. Now, in many parts of the world, I understand. North Korea, Afghanistan, Yemen, right? They're going to hate you no matter what, and they're going to hate you violently when you proclaim this message. Not always, but it should be the expectation. It is the expectation in certain places of the world. And so I'm a little glib about that conversation or whatever with friends, which most of us can honestly have. We can do that with people. 
And most of the time when we have that conversation with people and we say like, hey, I just want you to dislike me for the right reasons. Would you be willing to talk with me so that you can dislike me for the right reasons? Right? Most of the time, the, the greatest risk that we have in a conversation like that is that they might say something mean to us. That's probably in our culture, in our context, the greatest risk. But I understand that around the world, the risks are often much, much greater than that, right? Now, all of this isn't to minimize the, the first point, that persecution is real. It's terrible. It causes pain. Here's an example. I just uh, came across the story. Now, this is an historical example. It happens around the world. It happens around the world today. But I want to go back in, in history. This is the story of Dmitri, a man who was raised in a Christian home in Russia before the communist takeover. Now, once the communists took charge, the churches were closed, and the nearest Christian church to where Dmitri lived was a three-day walk from his village, the only place where there were even Christians trying to meet. So he, he, he only attended any kind of worship service maybe once or twice a year. So he said to his wife, he said, you know, he said, let's start gathering just as a family to, to start reading the Bible together, do a little training and teaching of our, of our children to make up for what they're missing with no formal church now. Let's start doing this more, our, more ourselves. And so they started doing that. But then the neighbors found out, and, they, and, they, and lots of neighbors started joining in. And pretty soon there were about 70 people from the village rev- regularly crowding into his, his home. Now this became a threat came a threat to the authority structures. And then the, the doors burst open one day and the soldiers arrest Dimitri for starting an illegal church. And they send him to prison, hundreds of miles away in a cell so small that he could barely step in one direction or another after getting out of bed for 17 years. That's the kind of persecution that we're talking about in Jerusalem or worse. Christians being dragged from their homes and committed to prison. That's what it says. That's point number one. What can we say about the early church in the book of Acts? Point number one, it was persecuted. Now, what else can we say? Point number two, it was scattered. Go back to verse one. When the great persecution arose against the church, it says the Christians were all scattered. Scattered where? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. In other words, pushed out into the world beyond the city of Jerusalem. See, up to this point, Jerusalem had been a relatively safe place. Jesus Jesus was dead. He was gone. That had kind of settled a little bit. And Christianity was seen initially, by the Romans certainly, but even in some sense by many of the Jews, was seen as a sect of Judaism. And the Romans did allow a decent amount of, of, of freedom, relatively speaking, in the territories that they occupied for established religions, formal religions of that territory, to kind of operate so long as they weren't in any political trouble. Now, in the early days, even though Jesus had fallen on the wrong side of the, of the Jewish authorities, the very first Christians were local, were local Jews. And they kept up meeting in the temple courts and the synagogues. And so they kind of, at, at some level, blended in as just sort of a sect of Judaism. But over time, and, 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 and according to God's plan, an increasing number of Greek speakers began to, to follow Jesus as well. They were called the Hellenists. And often the Hellenists were Jews as well because they, the Jews had been scattered before through periods of exile. But these were, these were Greek-speaking Jews who were in Jerusalem, but there were cultural differences between them and the Jews and in Jerusalem, and Stephen himself would have been among the, the Hellenists, and it was probably, most scholars believe, these Hellenist Christian converts who were the targets of the most severe Christian persecution, and therefore, 
mainly these Christian Hellenists who were the ones who were scattered. And it tells us in Acts 11 that they were scattered, because those who were scattered according to the persecution that arose because of Stephen, they were scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But see, the thing about being scattered is that rightly understood, Christians who are scattered, they take Jesus with them, don't they? James Boyce points out in his commentary on Acts that the sense of this word for scattering is not the scattering of something when it disappears. Because sometimes we use the word scattering in, in that kind of way. This is the scattering of something that is spread and then takes root where it lands. In other words, when you hear the word scattered, as it relates to the church in Acts chapter 8. Don't think of it as scattering, like scattering uh, the ashes of someone who's cremated like across the sea, like where it just scatters and just kind of dissipates. No, think of this as like scattering seed that goes into the ground and begins to grow. And this gives us an idea of, of, of where we're going to go in, a, in, in just a few minutes. God knew what he was doing. The Hellenists, the Jewish Christians most disliked by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, would have been the ones most ideal and uniquely suited to tell people about Jesus in the Greek-speaking lands where they would have ended up. Back to Dimitri for a second. Dimitri, the Russian house church leader who was sent to prison because of his faith in Jesus, hundreds of miles away, that's where he was sent, to interact with people that he would have never interacted with otherwise had he not been sent to prison. And every morning he would stand up at his bed and he, was ra- and he would raise his arms to the praise of God and sing a song of praise to Jesus every morning for 17 years. And almost every morning for 17 years, the other prisoners would laugh at him and they would mock him. But on the day of his scheduled execution, Dimitri was dragged from his cell and as he was being led away, 1,500 prisoners began to sing. The same song of praise that they had heard Dimitri sing and had learned from him. The ones who had mocked him now sang what some observers called in the greatest choir of all of human history. Dimitri had been scattered, and the gospel had taken root in the hearts of 1,500 exiles and prisoners through persecution. Do you view yourself as scattered with a purpose? Where has God planted you? It may not be, and I pray it would never be, with the same kind of drama as someone like Dimitri or with the same kind of way as the apostles. But he has scattered you, and he has planted you somewhere. Where is it? Not all of us because of persecution. Some of us just scattered because of the need for employment, for education, just daily life. The church I first attended in college after I I became a Christian myself, used to have a sign at the end of the driveway that said, you are now entering into your mission field. And what it was, it was a reminder that every time you leave this place, God is scattering you. See, the reason why we gather is so that we can then be scattered and then come back together for strengthening, for encouragement, for reminder of who we are and what we're about. But when you leave this place, God is scattering you. Some, some of you will go to school. Some of you go to work in hospitals, in restaurants, in stores, and, or other kinds of work sites. All of us are scattered into the community when we, when we go shopping, when we seek medical care, when we just simply live in our neighborhood. Does that, does that scare you? That to do that while identifying as a Christian? It shouldn't. It shouldn't because even though the Christian church, the early Christian church was persecuted, 
And even though they were scattered, point number three, the Christian church in the book of Acts was also incredibly confident. And that confidence grew out of at least two things. One, it grew out of, it grew out of their belief in a sovereign God and their belief in a resurrected Savior. Right? They had confidence in a sovereign God. Now, I don't know if every individual Christian sent to prison or forced from their homes could have connected all the dots with what God was doing, but the dots were there to be connected. You go back to Acts chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus is still among his disciples after his death and his resurrection, but before he ascended back into heaven. Jesus gathered the disciples and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, Jesus, um, when, are, when are you going to be back? Or when are we going to do this? Are we going to do this now? When are, you, when are you going to bring everything, everything to its rightful conclusion? When's it going to happen? And Jesus said to them, it's, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he's saying, let me handle the big picture, okay? But, then he said, but, and then he told them what he was going to do. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, what Jesus gave his disciples before he left was the outline for the rest of human history. The rest of the history of the Christian church was outlined for Jesus right there. He said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to empower you through God the Holy Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to be scattered throughout the world and testify to the truth of what you now know. And you're going to do it locally first and then it's going to go out from there into the whole region of Judea. And then it's going to go beyond that into the region of Samaria where people may know something about the true God, but they're misunderstood. And then it's going to go to the whole world, even where people who have known, known nothing about the one true God, and you're going to take it there. It's the outline for the remainder of human history, and we are living in the midst of that outline right now. But it doesn't take a very hard look to see how God was sovereignly working that plan in Acts chapter 8. The church had received the Holy Spirit. They were still largely in Jerusalem, and God said, okay, it's time. And the persecution came, and the church was scattered, scattered to be planted. Planted where? Acts chapter 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said it should happen. And so it began. God was using even the injustice of persecution intended by those who did it to destroy the church. He was using that injustice as the mechanism by which he was going to accomplish his mission. And so out the gospel went from Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria, and as you go through the book of Acts, spread throughout the Greek-speaking Roman world. They had confidence in a sovereign God. They also had confidence in a resurrected Savior. Remember, Jesus had predicted that his followers would be hated, not because they were jerks, but because they were followers of Jesus. It's going to happen. And if they hated Jesus, remember, who was never himself a jerk, they hated him for the right reasons. And if they hated Jesus for the right reasons, then they would hate his followers as well. They watched, his followers had watched Jesus endure this. They had watched him experience persecution for the right reasons. They had watched his unjust arrest, the mockery of his trial. They had seen and they knew about the execution. They had seen, though, also they had seen its result. They saw what came next. They saw that what persecution Jesus experienced was not the end. 
They saw the glory on the other side of it. They saw that Jesus wasn't defeated by it. They saw that he rose, that sin had been paid for, that the payment that he said he was going to make had not only been made, but it had been accepted. They had seen the resurrected body of Jesus, and it gave them the confidence to know that whatever any human might do to them, on the other side of it was resurrection and glory. It gave them an eternal hope that could never be taken away. You see that in Stephen. Back to what I read at the end of chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, sort of the preamble to the text this morning. As Stephen was being attacked, the Holy Spirit, it says, gave him a vision of the resurrected Jesus, victorious and sovereign, standing at the right hand of God. And because of that, Stephen had the strength to follow his Savior all the way to the end. Because he saw himself in, as part of that grand narrative, right? Stephen had been arrested, so had Jesus. Stephen's teaching had been twisted against him, so it was with Jesus. Stephen had been taken outside of the city to be executed, so was Jesus. And in, and in Stephen's death, he prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners and that God would receive his spirit, just like Jesus. You see the confidence of the apostles? The apostles here? You see it in verse 1? The church was scattered into Judea and Samaria except the apostles, it says. They stayed. Now, you might charge them with cowardice because of this, right? Wait, wait, they're not going to? No, it isn't to say that those who left were cowards and isn't it to say that those who stayed were cowards. Rightly understood, in God's sovereign plan, leaving was the obedient job of most of the Christians. That was the church's mission. God would take the gospel into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But for the apostles who felt the duty to stay, despite the heat that was there, they stayed so that they could be a source of central support and encouragement to the scattered church. It was a central place where the church could know that there were people that were praying for them and encouraging them. But remember, if you think about this for a second, these guys who stayed, that now were displaying this bravery by staying in the midst of the hottest of the persecution, it wasn't all that long ago where these guys, the apostles, they were the cowards. They were the ones who had run from Jesus. They were the ones who had locked themselves in a, in a room wondering what was going to happen to them. Right? What transformed this bunch of cowards into a bunch of people who were fearless for their faith, willing to stay even when it got really hot? Only the resurrection. When the, when the guards dragged Dimitri from his cell and the prisoners began to, to sing, the guards leading Dimitri to his execution, <laughs> they just they let go of his arms. They couldn't believe what was was happening, and they stepped away from him in fear because what was happening was just beyond anything that they could comprehend. There was something different. What they, what, what's happening here? And they looked at him and they said, who are you? And Dimitri said, I'm a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Jesus, the living God, the resurrected Lord. The guards returned Dimitri to his cell. He wasn't executed that day. He was ultimately released. Now, that doesn't happen in the lives of many followers of Jesus who are taken to their execution, but it does ultimately and eternally happen exactly that way for every Christian. You realize that? The executioner, the enemy, 
death, comes and makes His claim on each of us and on our eternal soul and says that for your crimes, you must now die. And unlike Dimitri or Stephen or the thousands and thousands of martyrs throughout the history of the Christian church, that claim is actually just. For our crimes, that is the just punishment. We ought to die. Death is the appropriate sentence. But if there was any question as to the outcome, when that moment comes, the heavenly choir of heaven lifts up its voice and sings a song of worship when the moment of death arrives. And the resurrected and reigning Jesus looks down from the right hand of the throne of heaven and He says, no, not that one. That one is my son. That one is my daughter. I have died for him. I have died for her. And the sentence shall not be carried out. And He stands there as the resurrected Lord and He says, I am the living proof of it. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is your confidence. And our love for others and our desire to see them know the hope that is in that Jesus without fear or without, without concern about how they might react to us, right? that comes from a confidence of knowing that our eternal, eternal security is found in Jesus. The story is widely circulated of the ancient church, church father, John Chrysostom, around the year 400 or so. He was brought before the empress and she threatened him with banishment if he insisted on his continuing to preach the message about Jesus. He said to her though, he said, you, you can't banish me for this entire world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the empress. No, you can't. For my life is hid with Christ in God, he told her. I will take away your treasures, she said. No, you can't. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you'll have no one left. Chrysostom said, no, you can't. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence of this resurrected Jesus. Lord, I don't pretend and neither ought any of us to pretend that these things are, are easy. They come at a cost. There's real suffering involved. For many around the world, even today, the mere fact of what we're doing is a threat to their lives. And Lord, don't allow us to be glib about that or to take it lightly. But Lord... Don't allow us either, on the other hand, to be anxious beyond what we ought to be concerned about. Allow us to know with absolute surety that our life, our hope, is in yours, in your life, and in your death. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.